taking a, a brief break from Exodus. We're at the tail end of the book of Exodus. Uh, I thought it would be good for us to be reminded of our dual vocation as believers, as peacemakers. And we're going to see that there's both a, a vertical and a horizontal application to that vocation. The title of my sermon is Peace Out <laughs> and Peace In. The big idea, peacemakers pursue both vertical and horizontal peace for the glory of God. Now, if you've been used by the Lord to bring someone to Christ, again, we affirm as a church that God saves. I love what Paul says, you know, I, I planted the seed of Paulus waters, God gives the growth. And so we affirm that God saves from eternity past to eternity future. And yet he uses us. He uses his church. His church has been commissioned to make disciples. And I think there's this category related to our memory. If you've been used by God to evangelize an unbeliever, to see them trust in Christ, you remember that. Amen? Isn't it sweet to be a part of that process? To be used at the Lord to preach the gospel to an unbeliever and to see them by God's grace turn from sin and trust in Jesus? Well, uh, a student comes to mind for me. His name was Emmett. And this was when we lived in Seattle. We, uh, we did a, a church camp every year to California, to Lake Shasta. And we would rent these houseboats. And we'd take like 150, 200 students. It was quite the event. And it was very outreach-oriented. You know, we, we brought our kids, but we encouraged them, hey, bring your unsafe friends. We're going to be preaching the gospel every night. I was teaching through uh, the I Am Sayings of John's Gospel. And Emmett came, and Emmett was well-liked by everyone. He was a, a good-looking kid. He was popular in the high school. He was well-known. He was a wrestler, so he was big, and he was funny, but he was lost. He was living for the world. He had no knowledge of Christ. And so during that week at camp, every night after the sermon, he would have tons of questions. And so we'd walk down to the beach on Lake Shasta and sit down, and he would just ask, what did that mean? Why did Jesus say that? What do I do with that? And over about three days, it was a five-day camp, I think it was on night three, I just saw the Spirit break his heart. I saw this desperation, this urgency to leave his sin, to turn from sin, and to trust in Jesus. And he did. And it was so sweet. And we celebrated as a camp, and we came home, and uh, pretty soon after he was baptized, and then he was discipled by me for the next two years. He became a student leader. I saw incredible growth. He went to the master's college. He served in student ministry. He is walking with the Lord today. has a beautiful family. Emmett. I love me some Emmett. On occasion, I'll get a text. Hey, bro, how you doing? How's the family? Miss you, man. Love you. Thank you. That's peacemaking work. Amen? Because Emmett was at odds with God. He was an object of God's wrath, and by preaching the gospel to him, and by grace, him turning from sin and trusting to Jesus, he's now at peace with God. Amen? So evangelism is peacemaking work. It's important peacemaking work. Now, I've sat down uh, over the last 20 years of ministry, I've sat down with husbands and wives and even fellow brothers in Christ, where instead of peace, division and unrest ruled those relationships. And I walked beside these brothers and sisters, and we looked at God's Word together, and I pleaded with them to pursue the things that make for peace. And by God's grace, and in many of those situations, I saw healing, 
reconciliation, unity, and peace. This too is important peacemaking work. Amen? So, if someone said, hey, so, so you're a Christian, what does that mean? You could say, I'm, I'm a peacemaker. I'm called to make peace vertically between unbelievers and God, and I'm called to help promote peace and pursue things that make for peace in the local church. Peacemaking is an important work, and I would argue it is the primary vocation of the follower of Christ. We are called and equipped to make peace at both the vertical and horizontal levels. And I think it's important and necessary that often we're reminded of this work. Amen? So we're going to do that today. Again, our text, Matthew 5, 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Now, what are the Beatitudes? This falls, the bigger context is the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5 to 7. It begins with the Beatitudes. What are the Beatitudes? These are the marks of a disciple with the promise of God's present and future blessing. And these marks, if you've read through the Beatitudes, these marks have mainly to do with one's attitude, one's disposition. They really get to the heart. The Spirit, it is the Spirit of God that produces these attitudes and behaviors in the people of God for the good of God's community and for the glory of King Jesus. So again, if someone said, hey, so what are the Beatitudes again? Think, these are the attitudes. Everybody say attitudes. Good. These are the attitudes and behaviors that mark those who have Jesus as their king. And I've taught on the Beatitudes, and when I do... I talk about the three P's. This is helpful for any of the Beatitudes, whether whether it's blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. There are three things in each Beatitude. There's a principle, there's a practice, and there's a promise. So the first thing we'll look at is the principle. It's the attitude behind the kingdom behavior. And then we'll look at the practice, what this beatitude, we're going to tease it out. What does it look like in practice in everyday life? And then they all come with the promise, and we'll end with the promise. So again, the beatitudes are the marks. They are the marks of God's kingdom people. So number one, the principle. What is at the heart of the seventh beatitude? What is the attitude behind this beatitude? Ooh, What is the attitude behind this beatitude? Now, let's begin by making sure that we understand peace in the Bible. Peace in the Bible and how it's typically used in God's Word as we seek to put together a working definition of peace. And I want to start with two passages. Romans 5.1. I think everyone should be familiar with this. Romans 5.1. Paul says, Therefore, therefore, since we have been justified by what? By faith. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the vertical, the vertical peace. But then we come to Ephesians 2.14. For he himself, Christ, is our peace, who has made us, talking about two groups, and I'll give some context here. He has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. There, there's going to be a horizontal focus. So in Romans 5.1, let's start with the first one. In Romans 5.1, Paul is speaking 
of mankind's peace with God. So mankind can now have peace with God as a result of being justified by faith in Jesus Christ. So this refers to a relational harmony with God provided through the gospel. Amen? We can have peace with God through what Christ has done in his perfect life, sacrificial death, and resurrection. And by the Spirit, working in dead sinners, making us alive, we trust in Jesus, and we are declared righteous or innocent. And we now have what? Peace. And that peace is good. Amen? Oh, there's nothing better than knowing, ah, I'm right with God. I was an enemy of God. I was at odds with God. I wasn't his friend. I wasn't his child. I was a reprobate. I was a sinner cut off. But through Christ and because of Christ and my trust in Christ, I am now justified and I have and enjoy peace with God. So if you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then you know peace. We can all say that together. Now what is assumed here, because of sin, mankind is at odds with God. Because of sin, there is relational division between mankind and God. And Jesus, Jesus came to make a way for us, undeserving sinners, to have a right relationship with God by Him living a perfect life, which we cannot do because we're sinners, dying a death that all of us deserve. And He did that in our place, by the way. And then He rose again so that we undeserving sinners could have peace with God. In Ephesians 2.14, Paul is speaking of horizontal peace. So the first is the vertical peace, right? Horizontal peace is the peace between God's people that results from the gospel. And I've often said this, that when we preach the gospel, and when someone, by grace, trusts in Jesus, they are vertically reconciled to God and horizontally brought into God's family. Amen? There's peace at both the vertical and horizontal levels. Now, what's even more amazing about this peace in Ephesians 2.14 is that when you understand it in its historical context, I mean, okay, so you got two people that now have peace, big deal. That is a big deal, but understand the background here. Paul is talking about peace between Jews and Gentiles, and these two people groups formerly hated each other. They were at odds, but through the gospel and their trust in Jesus, they're now brought into the same family. They now enjoy peace. Wow. Both of these ideas, both the vertical and the horizontal, are found in 1 John chapter 1, 3 and 4. One of my favorite passages in the whole Bible. 1 John 1, 3 to 4. So both the idea of the vertical peace and the horizontal peace, which describes our vocation as believers both described in 1 John 1, 3-4. John writes, John the beloved disciple, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. Why? Why are they proclaiming the good news about Jesus? Why? So that, here's the purpose clause, so that you too may have fellowship with us, there's the horizontal, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we're writing these things so that our joy may be complete. And I would argue you will not know true joy until you know the vertical piece and the horizontal piece that results from the gospel. What is John saying here? 
John is saying the purpose of our gospel preaching, of our good news preaching, is to see people having fellowship with God and God's people, the church. Now, the word fellowship used twice in 1 John 1, 3-4 is used as a sign of brotherly unity. It denotes relational harmony, communion, and close relationships. This is what the gospel provides, both vertical and horizontal peace. Now, maybe you've never thought of yourself as a peacemaker, but if you're a Christian, that's what you're called to. So we have that word, peacemaker. It comes from the Greek word peace, which is irini. It's a cool word, irini. Now, peacemaker is irinipoios. Try saying that. Irinipoios. And here's what it means to be a peacemaker. A person who restores peace between people. One who works for peace. Peace is your business if you're a peacemaker. Amen? I'm all about making peace. We understand this peace to have both a vertical dimension and application and a horizontal dimension or application. In sum, Jesus is calling his followers to work for this peace, to proclaim it in the world and to promote it in the church. The gospel, if you get nothing else today, the gospel provides both vertical peace, which is relational harmony with God, and horizontal peace, which is relational harmony with God's people. Are those good things, to have relational harmony with God? Are we born into that? I was born outside of the garden. I don't know about you. Actually, I do know about you. You two were born outside of the garden. The gospel, the good news, brings both Vertical peace, relational harmony with God, and horizontal peace, which is relational harmony with God's people. Now, what does it mean to be a peacemaker? That's going to bring us to number two, the practice. We've looked at the principle, the attitude behind the beatitude, but what is the practice? As Christians, our vocation is that of peacemaker. And again, this work applies to two domains, two levels. First, the world, and second, the church. As we just saw, the Bible has both a vertical dimension and a horizontal dimension for peacemaking. Let's start with the vertical. Sound good? The vertical. As Christ, I mean, I think of like Mark 10.45 and Luke 19.10. Luke 19.10, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the who? Not the saved, not the found, not the righteous, but the lost. And then Mark 10.45, for the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. As Christ came to make peace, Christ came to make peace between a holy and just God and a unholy, wicked, sinful, cut-off people. So as Christ came to do that, Christ came to do that. He came to make peace between God and man. So too, our job is to help bring about peace between unbelievers and a holy and just God. How do we do this? That's our vocation. 2 Corinthians 5.20. 2 Corinthians 5.20. Therefore, we are, Paul says, ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So we, like Paul, we're not apostles, by the way, But like Paul, we are ambassadors. We are ambassadors for Christ. That means we are his representatives, his messengers, commissioned by Christ to make an appeal to the world. And what is our appeal to the world? Be reconciled 
to God. How is this possible? How is this possible? What do we point them to next? What's the next verse say? What's the very next verse say in 2 Corinthians 5? So if our appeal is to be reconciled to God, the follow-up question is how? How is that possible for me, a sinner, to be reconciled to a good, holy, and just God? 2 Corinthians 5.21 God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Whoa! (laughs) God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God? Again, the call to be reconciled is the call to have peace with God. This is what the gospel does. And this is therefore the goal of God's people as we evangelize and do mission and seek to make disciples. Christ took our sin so that we could get His what? His righteousness. And thus have right standing or peace with God. Let's look at one more passage for this point. In John 16.33, Jesus says, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have what? Irony, peace. True peace, relational harmony with God, is found in who alone? Who alone? It's found in Christ, in Jesus. What does the Great Commission call us to do? I think it's so easy for Christians to get lazy as it concerns making disciples. Man, we, we are, aren't we? I mean, who right now is busy, I'm not asking for hands to be raised, but I mean, is that on your radar? Are, are you thinking about it when you wake up and when you go to bed, making disciples, reaching the lost, those who God and His providence has placed in your relational world, uh, a coworker, a classmate, a fellow student, a neighbor, a family member? Are you thinking about them and, again, their current state as an unbeliever and where they're headed if they continue down that trajectory, hell forever? Do you desire to see them saved? Are you committed to praying for them and to telling them the good news and appealing to them to be reconciled to God and making known to them the good news that Christ took our sin so that we could have his righteousness? (laughs) What does the Great Commission call us to do? To make disciples. Simply put, we are called to bring people to Jesus. In doing this, we are inviting them to have what? Is that word? Peace. We strive to make disciples by preaching the gospel to unbelievers, praying that the Spirit would give them new life to accept the good news in faith and to turn from their sin. So to be a peacemaker is to be a gospel proclaimer so as to see unbelievers brought into a saving relationship with God through faith in Christ. But not only is there a vertical dimension to this, there is also a horizontal one. Once people have vertical peace, right? Once people have been reconciled to God, they have relational harmony with God, they are then brought into who? God's family, right? The, what we call this? The church. And are called to do life and fellowship with a local body. These horizontal relationships in the church must be marked by what? Peace. Relational harmony. Now, where do we see this, by the way? 
I think the vertical piece is clear in Scripture. I think it's clear that we're called to be about that work of being gospel proclaimers, peacemakers at the vertical level. But what about the horizontal level? Let's start with Romans 14, 19. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. I love that verse. So then, let us pursue, and I'm going to talk about that verb in the Greek. It's a really cool verb. Let us pursue what makes for peace in mutual upbuilding. He's talking to believers, by the way. And then 2 Timothy 2.22, 2 Tim 2, colon 2.2. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and what do you think's next? Peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. What should we do what should we do when peace is not present in God's church among God's people? What should we do? Eh, nothing. No, what should we do? Philippians 4, 2-3. Paul says, I entreat, I urge, I beg, I entreat Euodia, love that name, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. yes. I ask you also, true companion. Now, he could be referring to one member of the church or to the church collectively as a whole, true companion. But he's appealing to the church. I ask you also, true companion, help these women, help them, who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So if two believers are at odds, what's lacking? What's the word? Peace. So if two believers are at odds in the church, what should we do? Go to them and make it right. Go to them. Appeal to them. Encourage them to make it right. Again, if two believers are at odds in God's church, we must come alongside them. We must help them to pursue relational harmony, peace, for the sake of the health of God's church and for the sake of the witness of God's church. If you personally are at odds with a believer in the church, go to them and make it right. I told you we talk about the verb to run or pursue. We're almost there. But again, if you're at odds with a believer in the church, Repent of your sin, of your bitterness, of your anger, and seek peace, relational unity. As Paul says, here we go, in Romans 14, 19, pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. All right, so Paul uses the verb, everybody say, dioko. Good, you guys are Greek speakers. The ESV translates this verb as pursue, but the verb means to run after. I mean, it's not just a casual jog. I mean, you are, you are pursuing. You are running. There's a sense of urgency. It means to follow with haste or intensity. We are to, here's, here's the point. We are, church, to passionately run after those things that make for peace in our relationships in the church. Any Tom Cruise fans out there? Okay, yeah. Why would I ask that? Where's he going? Tom Cruise. Who's that? Well, one of my all-time favorite movies is The Firm. It's based on a John Grisham novel. 
But what I like about the movie, and we talked about this recently, is Tom Cruise is always running in his movies. There's always this sense of urgency, and that guy can fly. It's incredible how fast he is. I don't know if that's like camera tricks, but the reason I bring up Tom Cruise is <laughs> he's always running for his life in his roles, right, his character. But there's this sense of urgency. And that's the sense of the verb dioko. That, that's the image conveyed by Paul in Romans 14, 19. There should be a sense of urgency related to our unity, related to our peace in the church, a sense that we'll do whatever it takes to promote unity and peace, to pursue what makes for mutual upbuilding in God's people. Man, seek to edify God's people. Passionately pursue this. Is that your MO, Christian? Is that your modus operandi? Is that what you're committed to? Is making peace, pursuing peace and the things that make for peace in the church? Do you desire to build up your fellow believers or to tear them down? Do you weigh your words and actions carefully? Are you seeking to help your brothers and sisters in Christ along in their journey of faith by what you say and how you act toward them? Now, here's the fundamental question. Why is this peace at the horizontal level so important? Why does it matter? I mean, our culture says, hey, let me do me. Let me be. Who cares? Why is peace in the church so important? Our peace lived out in the church proclaims the power of the gospel. Amen? It is a powerful message that brings peace where formerly there was division. Our peace validates the gospel. Did you know that? Our peace validates the gospel. In a world full of division and hate, it is imperative that the world see the peace of Christ at work in God's church. With people from different races, different ages, and different economic backgrounds doing life together in love and enjoying peace together. That is what, if you keep reading in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, that is what it means to be salt and light. We're never going to be salt and light if we're not at peace as brothers and sisters, if we're not working for the things and pursuing the things, and Tom Cruise running after the things that make for peace in the church. Without peace at the horizontal level, the witness of the church is crippled. How, I mean, this is so ridiculous. How can we call unbelievers to have peace with God through Christ if His body is divided? Tell me that. That certainly sends a mixed message. Think of this in terms of the metaphors that God uses for the church in the Word. What are some of the metaphors that Paul specifically uses for the church? He calls it a body. He calls it a family. He calls it a temple. All right, so if... <laughs> If a body is the, like your physical body, if, if my leg just fell off right now, well, one, I would notice it, and you guys would probably freak out. Like, what just happened? The point I'm making is this. If a body, a physical human body is divided, say a part is removed, the whole body suffers and doesn't function as well. It's true? Can we agree with that? Okay, so divided body is not a good thing. If a family is divided, a family, that family becomes unhealthy. I've seen it. If a bill, I'm, I'm done with the treehouse for the most part. Woo! Okay. Thank you for your support, church. Uh, if a building is divided, 
if, if the parts of that building are not in their proper place, then the building will what? It's going to fall. So the implications of our unity or the lack thereof are massive. Let's just go to Jesus' prayer. How did Jesus pray for the church? Do you recall John 17? Oh, man. John 17, 20 and 21. Listen. Jesus transitions here. He's been praying for the disciples. Now he's praying for future believers. He's praying for us. He continues to do that, by the way. He says, I do not ask for these only, referring to the disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us, church. Amen? And what does Jesus pray for us? He prays, this is what he says, that they may all be what? One. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. So that, here's the purpose of our unity, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Oh, so what are the implications of our unity, our relational peace in the church? It's so that the world might believe that Jesus is the sent one, the Messiah, the Savior. The gospel is at stake. Why should we be united? Because what's at stake? The gospel. Again, recall Ephesians 2. Paul is talking about how the gospel has brought peace between Jews and Gentiles. Remarkable. That unity, that peace created amongst God's people by the gospel simply didn't make sense to the watching world. It was unbelievable because it was supernatural. Amen? It was supernatural. And it was attractive. Peace is attractive, right? If you've been in a home where you have two parents that are just doing this all the time, fighting and yelling and screaming, maybe you grew up in that. There was no peace. It was not attractive. At no point did you say, you know what? I long for that one day. I, I want my marriage to look like that. Lie. But when you see two parents, a husband and a wife, loving each other and serving each other and being kind and gentle toward one another, that's attractive. Amen? So years ago, I, I took a group from our church in Washington. I took almost every man, okay? It was incredible. All the men came to this conference, and probably because Vody Bauckham was the speaker. That's probably why they came. But all the men came. I'd say 90% came. And man, this group of guys, I mean, if, if you looked at the group that we brought, you got guys of different ages, different skin colors. I mean, uh, you know, Seattle area, it was a melting pot, so we had Asian, we had African American in our church. And, and we all come together, different bank accounts. You know, hey, guys that were making a lot of money, guys that were barely surviving. But we're all together, right, at this event. And I remember multiple times during that men's event, that men's conference, guys from other churches would come and say, man, you guys are united. You guys really love each You guys are just hanging out. You're always together, loving and serving, praying together. Like, it was attractional. It was attractive. But man, I love what I'm seeing. And I said, praise God for that. That's what the gospel does. Amen? The gospel creates that kind of unity in peace. Now, why must we be about this work, namely this work of pursuing peace and unity in the church? Because, everybody say because. Why pursue it? Why care about it? Why promote it? Because it is God's revealed will in his word for his people. And if it's God's will in his word, then we should be about it. Amen? I mean, that makes sense to me. Listen to Psalm 133, 
133, verse 1. Behold, behold, how good. Everybody say good. Yeah, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. What does God's word say? When brothers dwell in unity, it's good. It's good and it's pleasant. If the Lord calls this good, peace and unity amongst God's people, then this is what we must strive for in God's church. And everybody said? Amen. Okay, so I don't usually talk about movies. I don't think I do. But there is one other movie. I guess I talked about Tom Cruise. I, didn't, I, I, I mentioned The Firm. I did. Who's ever seen Remember the Titans? It's my favorite sports movie. It's during uh, a sad time in our nation's history, right? There was segregation. It was in the 50s in the South in Virginia. But this movie's cool because you got integration happening. So you got black students and white students coming together, and they have to learn to play football together, all right? And there's a lot of problems. They don't like each other, and they go to camp. And the coach, Coach Boone, he's played by Denzel Washington, he notices something right away. He notices that in the two buses they're taking, you have all the white students on one bus and all the black students. He goes, no, 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 no. Everybody get out. And he assigns every white player, a black player, as like a seatmate. And you guys are going to not only sit together, but you're going to room together. It's really intense, right? You can just see what's playing out. It's ugly. But at camp, what happens? What happens at camp, at football camp? They come together. They become a unit. And it's so cool because, and, and again, why I get sometimes emotional is, again, great movie, great scene, but that's what the gospel does, right? And on the way home, they're singing together, right? They're dancing, they're having fun, and when they pull up to the parking lot, the best scene in the movie, the parents are like, what happened at camp? What is going on here? That is what the gospel does. It creates that type of unity and peace, and now the team can function together, and now when there's unity and peace in God's church, we can function together and be busy doing the first thing, which is making what? Vertical peace through the preaching of the gospel. It's true. It's really hard to do that well if the second is not a reality, if we're at odds. Our vocation as peacemakers is full-time work. We can't take a break from this. It includes evangelizing the lost by proclaiming the gospel of peace in order to see sinners reconciled to a holy God through faith in Jesus Christ and it involves, too, we talked about helping to promote and keep the peace in God's church by reminding brothers and sisters of the importance of our unity and our peace as proof of the power of the gospel at work in God's church. If believers are at odds, what do we do? We point them to the gospel and we remind them of our responsibility to forgive one another, love one another, and serve one another. When my boys fight, I sing Ephesians 4, 31 and 32. Let all bitterness and wrath, anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted. Why am I singing? I don't know. Forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. You call that singing, Chris? That is why I am no longer leading music on Wednesday nights. So, <laughs> If believers are at odds, we bring them to God's word. We point them to the gospel. And again, we remind them 
of our responsibility to forgive, love, and serve one another. Let me end with some practice steps, and then we'll talk about the promise, and then I'll pray. We're almost done. Three quick practice steps. Number one, preach the gospel. Preach the gospel and pray. Pray for gospel-proclaiming opportunities. You know, if I or any of the pastors were to listen to your prayers, it would quickly tell us what you prioritize, right? The things that you pray for, you obviously prioritize in your day-to-day. How often do you pray for opportunities to share the gospel with unsaved family members, co-workers, friends, neighbors, classmates? So preach the gospel, pray for opportunities. You know, I've talked about this 1-4-P challenge. I know the name's kind of corny, but it's a good reminder. The 1-4-P challenge, find one person in your relational world, right? One person. This could be a coworker, a neighbor, a friend who doesn't know Jesus. And begin the 4-P. Start praying for them, number one. Start planning how you're going to engage them, right? Invite them over to your house for dinner. Say, hey, will you do a Bible study with me one-on-one? So pray, plan. Number three, practice. Make sure you're actually practicing the gospel in front of them, right? If they, if they see you cussing and yelling and not being a good husband or father, wow, that's going to send a mixed message. So make sure you're actually practicing the good news. And then number four, and this is the hardest, is you've got to proclaim it, right? You've got to actually tell them the good news. So start praying for that person. Plan how you're going to engage them. Live out the gospel. Practice the gospel in front of them. And then you got to proclaim it. you got to tell the good news. Number two, pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding in the church. Encourage fellow believers with the Word of God. Pray with fellow believers and point out the fruit that you see in their lives. And number three, repent. All of us, repent for not sharing the gospel and repent for not pursuing the things that make for peace in the church and resolve to be a peacemaker at both the vertical and horizontal levels. And finally, what is the promise, the third P? We've looked at the principle. We've talked about the practice. What is the promise associated with this beatitude? Number three, the promise, again, Matthew 5, 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called, what? Sons of God. Whoa. So I want to end with two thoughts here. Two thoughts here. The promise, the promise speaks to both our present identity and our future vindication. Let me explain. This title, Sons of God, is true. Everybody say it's true. It's true now of followers of Jesus. Amen? Our identity has changed in Christ. If you belong to the Son, you're a son or daughter of the King. Amen? So it's true now, right? This title, Sons of God, is true of the follower of Jesus now and will one day be recognized by all at the return of the king. So let's start with our future vindication. Again, I said this promise speaks to both our present identity and our future vindication. I want to start with our future vindication. The world, how does the world view Christians? Oh, they're the best. I love them. I love all of them. Is that how the world sees Christians? The world often sees Christians as foolish as weak. You know, I was listening to Mark Dever the other day. He was doing a pastor's talk, and he said, you know, 25 years ago, when I would do a hospital visitation, I noticed that the nurses and the receptionists and the doctors, they were glad I was there. They welcomed me. Now they're disgusted by me. Isn't that interesting how things have changed? 
well, anyway, side note. The world oftentimes sees Christians as foolish and weak and strange, but, everybody say but, oh, at the return of the king, what we truly are will be made clear to all, sons of God, for that is what we are now. Those who have embraced the Prince of Peace in faith and his mission of peacemaking will be vindicated by the King of Kings. Now, second, second, our current identity is evidenced by the work we are now involved in and who we resemble. <laughs> who, who is about peacemaking work? Who did it perfectly? Jesus, right? Jesus demonstrated this perfectly. Listen to John five nineteen. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees his Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. So Jesus, the Son, imitated his Father. Now follow me here. Simply put, here's the principle, children imitate their Father. When we engage in the work of peacemaking, both vertically and horizontally, we show that we are children of the children of the Father. Whenever I'm doing push-ups at home, or maybe I'm reading a book, my kids, what do they do? Sam will get down. Oh, so we're doing this, Dad? And then she'll put one hand behind her back, two years old. And then she'll just do two fingers. I'm just kidding. But... My kids, when I do push-ups or whatever I'm doing, if I'm outside working, they want to copy me. They want to resemble daddy. They imitate their father. God, right now, is at work making peace. Are you? Are you? Are you imitating your heavenly father? Do you look like your heavenly father? Children of God, listen, church, children of God are committed to doing They are committed to doing what they see him doing until the return of King Jesus. So let's commit to being peacemakers. Listen with this question. How have you responded to the Prince of Peace? Oh, that's the most important question in the entire world, amen? How have you responded personally to the Prince of Peace? of peace, Jesus Christ. Have you trusted in Jesus so as to enjoy relational harmony with God, forgiveness, and new life? If so, if you're like, yes, I have. Okay, if so, how are you currently involved in peacemaking work? Preaching the gospel and promoting peace and unity in the church. Pray for opportunities to proclaim the gospel of peace to unbelievers, and pray, secondly, pray for wisdom and discernment to bring peace and promote unity among fellow believers. All, I say all, all for the glory of God. When we imitate our Father, more about His work of peacemaking, it brings Him honor and glory. So think about that. How can I be more involved as a follower of Jesus of helping to make vertical peace, preaching the gospel of peace to unbelievers. And secondly, how can I be, as Paul says, you know, working, pursuing, running after those things that make for peace in the church? How can I do that? And if you haven't trusted in Jesus, you don't know peace. You will never know peace until you know the Savior, 
Jesus Christ. So like Paul, I implore you, I beg you, be reconciled to God. Trust in the one who took your sin and the punishment your sin deserves at the cross on himself, dying in your place. Are you kidding me? What do we call that? Love, grace, and mercy all wrapped up in one. Jesus did that for sinners like you and me. Trust in him. Turn from your sin. Believe on him. And guess what? Not only did he die, but he was risen from the dead, which means all his claims are true and what he did worked. So trust in Jesus and get busy being a peacemaker. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gospel that brings peace at both the vertical and horizontal levels. Help us to be about your peacemaking work for your glory, for the good of your church, and for the good of the lost who need to hear this good news message. Father, put on our hearts the sense of urgency that this mission demands, that we would see the lost through your eyes. And at the same time, I pray there be a sense of urgency in the church. Father, if we see division, that we would come alongside brothers or sisters. If we're at odds with a brother or sister, that we'd come alongside them, that we confess sin, repent of sin, and again, pursue the things that make for peace so that our church is attractive to the watching world. Help us to live on mission with Jesus' King for His glory and our joy. We pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said,